Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, bosses. This is Johnny, and welcome to episode 100 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I am back in Ukraine, and Sam Marks is in... Arizona and Scottsdale. <laughs> congrats on 100 episodes. It's been a marathon, buddy. Dude, super congrats, man. I, I can't believe it's actually been... It, I don't know. Does it feel like a long time or does it feel like it was a very kind of quick race to 100? I, I think at episode 60, it felt like a really, really long time. And now it doesn't feel like it's that long because that 100 mark was always just kind of milestone that was hanging out there. And at 60, it was like, man, it's going to be hard to get to 100 because most of our episodes, we have to go out, find somebody that we want to speak about a subject, talk about a subject. And then the scheduling is actually probably the the most cumbersome bit of the entire process. So, And we do it all ourselves, you know. So, Yeah. So yeah. I, I appreciate you, uh, Sam. I want to acknowledge you first because I don't know if you guys listening knows this, but Sam has been basically wrangling in all these guests spending a lot of his time uh, just, you know, getting these top bosses on. And I, I appreciate that. Oh, I appreciate you. We wouldn't be doing this podcast without, you know, without Johnny and without the format and the experience. So I couldn't be more excited. I think even if we just shut it down today, a, a venture very much worth the while. And I hope we've, you know, educated a lot of people along the way as we have ourselves. But I know we got a lot more episodes ahead of us. Yeah. And uh, I think from all the kind of questions and submissions that we've gotten for this episode, it, it really kind of shows the, like the quality of kind of information people are getting from this podcast and how much people actually like it. So big thank you to all of you listeners, because if it wasn't for all of you guys and gals, we wouldn't have continued doing the, the show. Absolutely. I think this is, this is going to be fun doing these questions because it, it's, it's going to show that Johnny and I are not experts and we're not financial advisors, but we're two guys on the path that everyone listening to this podcast and this episode is on that path. And we're all sharing in the, the experience and learning together. So this will actually be a good test of what we've learned over the last couple of years. Yeah, actually, I remember going like listening to one of the older episodes kind of right in the beginning. And just I think the both of us were saying, you know, it was it was our disclaimer, like we're not financial advisors, advisors, nor do we want to be. And I actually remember saying, if I ever get to that point where I act like an expert on everything, you know, even if I start getting a lot of knowledge, uh, I never want to be that expert. And if I ever start doing that, to call me out on it, you know, like send me a message or leave a comment in the boss now and just say, hey, Johnny, stop going the uh, investment guru route because that's not why you, why you started this. And I'm pretty happy that 100 episodes in, even though I feel like, you know, we've gotten a lot of knowledge on how to invest and we can probably give some pretty good advice. We still go into every episode and every topic as a student first. Absolutely. And we're, we're really taking the transition from entrepreneurship to investors because for the rest of our lives, we're probably not going to be entrepreneurs, but we probably will be investors. And I think that's really the transition that a lot of people out there are making, but we can talk more on point about entrepreneurship and advice to young people than we can about investing. But this investing quest that we're now two years into is a journey that we all share together and we're all learning and hopefully understanding what we're doing a lot better. 
Yeah, definitely. And so if you guys uh, like weren't listening to the last couple episodes, basically episode 100 is going to be your episode where we had all of you submit questions either in the boss lounge or through email. A lot of people submitted voice uh, questions. So we're actually going to play some of those on the show. And I know we got a ton of questions in. Uh, so we're, I'm sorry if, we, if we're going to miss a couple of them um, or if we're going to consolidate a couple and just make them shorter. Uh, but kind of, I guess without further ado, you want to just jump into all the, all the questions we have for this week's episode? Yeah, I think we have a, a total of 12 or 14. Uh, inc- and then there's a bunch. Actually, there's a lot of them, but we grouped them together a little bit in categories. So, Johnny, why don't you just start reading them off? We'll give answers and then we'll just make our way down the list. Well, the first one comes from Richard Patey. He says, what wine or whiskey will you be drinking to celebrate? Sam, what are you drinking? I saw that question come in and I couldn't help but laugh because so many of our early episodes, we were on the booze. But we got off of that and it's uh, it's 9 a.m. my time in Scottsdale. So I don't have anything exciting, man. I'm sorry. What do you, what do you have in front of you? <laughs> you have some water or some coffee at least? I got nothing. No, really? I just got a microphone. I got oh a microphone. Oh my god! So Sam's we're staying saliva. <laughs> yeah, we're staying. We're staying at an Airbnb in Scottsdale with a group of ten guys for a, a work retreat, and you know we're not good at grocery shopping. Put it that way. Oh my god, that's funny. So <laughs> I'm actually drinking a creamy strawberry fragrant Chinese tea with strawberry aroma to celebrate. And I actually had thought about opening, uh, grabbing a bottle of some unknown Ukrainian brandy from the <laughs> fridge just because I thought you'd be drinking and you'd force me to. But I'm glad mm. I didn't do that. We probably could have easily found a sponsor for that question if oh, we had yeah. just reached out to a couple of people. Hey, send, send us your best bottle of whiskey for episode 100. We'll, 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 we'll give it a shout out. <laughs> You know, by the way, I, th- uh, I think the last episode we had mentioned that we were going to be recording this live while we were in Spain or Portu- Portugal together. <laughs> the reason why that didn't happen is I think we were so hungover every day from drinking and so exhausted from driving and just mm-hmm. like doing so much. We just had to put it off another week. Yeah, actually, Johnny asked me, he's like, hey, you want to try to squeeze this out? I'm like, I can't do it, man. This is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a long episode and I don't have it in me. But so to be, better. to be fair, we had plenty of wine to celebrate getting to episode 100, even though we didn't actually record it until now. <laughs> yeah, and we have right. to drink. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 get back on the whiskey wagon for some future episodes, but uh, episode 100, we're gonna have to take a, a hard pass. Okay. So, second question is David A. Flores says the writing is on the wall. There's a major hard asset play coming in the next 12 to 18 months. What do you guys believe? is a good portfolio allocation towards the hard assets once this investment economy has shifted from paper. Also related to uh, this question, Rick Ditto says, also on Simon Black's recent podcast mentioned how he's holding more cash than ever and using short-term 28-day treasury bonds as well. He mentions how from the moment the Fed starts raising interest rates, there's an average, I think, of 32 months before economy starts to enter a recession. And last but not least, we have John King, who asked a mm-hmm. similar question. I'm going to play it for you guys right now before we answer these three questions. I have a question regarding the increase in stock values since the 2008 crash. The market has been going up ever since, 
and current stock price to earnings ratios are very high. There are various people predicting a crash. Notably, Ray Dalio, founder of the uh, huge fund Bridgewater Associates, has estimated there's a 70% probability of a recession prior to the next election in 2020. So let's assume that they're right. Markets are cyclical and there may be a crash in the next two or three years. Here are my questions. How would this data, one, affect what you do with your investments currently? Would you make any changes? Two, if you're a new investor, as some of the listeners may be, would you still suggest that they put spare cash into things like Vanguard index funds right now? In the knowledge that we may be at a peak and heading for a trough. All right, Sam. So three questions about the economy you know, crashing down. We're at peak mm-hmm. right now. Things are changing. Mm-hmm. 12 to 18 months. Things are you know, going crazy. Even Simon Black is holding cash. What, what is your answer? What are you doing? I generally agree with this. I would say I think we've been slightly bearish on the market since we started this podcast. I would say there's more than more than 50% chance we go into recession by 2020. But for me, it doesn't really matter. My strategy is I'm happy where I'm at. My strategy is the same. I'm not putting money aside to buy in a dip. I have money aside to buy in a dip, but it's not purposely there for that reason. So the way I think about this for typical long-term investors is you shouldn't try to time the market, right? Because you're just going to, in more cases than not, you're going to miss upside. And it's just not a good strategy for life. With that said, the way that I'm invested right now, I'm about 15% cash. That 15% is enough money that I can survive on for, you know, five, seven, 10 years probably if things got really rough and my other investments weren't doing well and weren't, weren't yielding anything. And it's also enough money that if there was something that looked really good, something that was tremendous value in, in a dip, that I could, I had money there to buy it. So I think my strategy would be slightly more different than other people's. But actually, let's just take a quick look at my investments because I looked at this a while ago and I was saying, I don't think I, I actually am that vulnerable. Let's say like a recession of four years that's going to draw down equity markets 40%, right? Mm-hmm. So of course, I have UBS, Vanguard, E-Trade, which is mostly like E-Trade is mostly bonds. Vanguard's obviously index funds. UBS is index funds. Those are all going to you have to assume they're going to be drawn down, you know, close to 40% in that scenario. Then I have Maybank, which is my REITs. Those are going to get hit, but they yield. So hopefully if they're managed well, they'll still be yielding during a recession. Uh, then Wealthfront will also get whacked. Then you go into some of the alternatives like Yield Street, Peer Street, Fundrise. I don't know how those are going to perform. It would be interesting, actually. Um, I, I'm not h- hoping for a recession, but it would be interesting to see how some of these alternative investments hold up in a recession. You would hope a lot better than equity markets. But in something like Peer Street, you know, you might get a lot of defaults and you might be OK on those defaults. You might not lose principal, but it's going to take a lot of time to get that principal back. So then I have a lot of cash. Obviously, it's going to be fine as long as you're you keep it safe. You don't want to put millions of dollars into one bank account. You want to make sure it's it's federally insured, even though if that federal insurance comes into play, we got a big problem. And then I ha- I have such big positions in my annuities. My annuities are probably my safest position because insurance companies are historically safer than banks. So those are are bringing in four percent a year. So that is almost guaranteed through a recession. Uh, and then my properties, self-storage, I have large investment in self-storage. We go into a recession. Those things are going to be probably more in demand than any time, although the property price might drop. But as long as we're not 
in a position that we're forced to liquidate those properties. I think all of the properties that I have will do good. All the properties in Thailand, I think, will do well. You know, people are going to want to go cheap. Nomads want to live cheap. 500 bucks a month, 700 bucks a month, no problem in a recession, right? Get rid of that London flat and move to Thailand and get your hustle on. Okay. Uh, so what will probably get really hurt in, in a big recession is my private investments, so my angel investments, which is why I've, I've stopped actively investing in, in so much of those. The good thing is if any of those emerge out of a recession, it probably means they're going to be an industry leader uh, and it's going to be a, you know, a 10, 50, 100 bagger type of return. So I'm, I'm happy with that. I've thought about this. It'd be really cool to be able to stress test your entire portfolio and say, here's five different recession scenarios and let's see how your portfolio does. I don't know any tools that are like that, but I feel, feel pretty good with weathering any type of, of storm that could be ahead. You know, that's actually uh, something that Co in the next question is actually going to mention. Uh, so mm -hmm. maybe uh, what I'll do is I'll read the next two questions and play his before I go to mine because I think they're actually all kind of related. So mm -hmm. Chen and Co says uh, he was just reading Financial Samurai and understanding the yield. And he's asking, how are we going to prepare for the next upcoming recession? Uh, are you guys hoarding cash? Which, which assets are you guys going to buy during recession? Uh, and I think you did, you answered a lot of that, but let me go ahead and play uh, Co V's question right now before uh, I get to my answer. Hi, Johnny and Sam. Um, I've been following the Investing Like a Boss uh, podcast since the last Nomad Cruise, where I uh, met and uh, briefly talked to Johnny. And I think it's awesome. Uh, you, you guys trying all the new investments and uh, seeing what works and whatnot. And I'm really enjoying uh, enjoying it, but I'm still catching up. Uh, I think I've covered like 20 or 30 episodes, so I got uh, I got some more content I can listen to uh, in the coming uh, months. Uh, one question that pops up um, is that I work in uh, quantitative finance, and what we do a lot for institutional investors is that we uh, develop and design uh, stress scenarios where we look at underlying drivers of the investment portfolio, and we see what the similarities are in the drivers between the different asset classes. Uh, to avoid uh, having the feeling of a yeah, false sense of security of diversification. I, got a, I had a relative in 2008 who had uh, like uh, an investment in a holiday park, had uh, high yield bonds, had uh, commercial real estate investments. And um, yeah, it, it, he thought he was very well diversified. But in the crisis of 2008, they all went bankrupt and they're still in uh, lawsuits at the moment. So there's no cash inflow. All the underlying assets are, are gone. Uh, or they stop working on the project. So I, I was just wondering, what is your uh, view on this? And uh, in, in, if you look at your portfolio, and uh, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to you, you, to, to hear what you uh, what you think. All right. So from my point of view, I think ever since we even started this podcast, people have been saying, you know, the economy is going to crash any day now. Like next month, mm -hmm. it's going to crash. You know, in twelve months, guarantees going to crash. In eighteen months, mm -hmm. guarantees going to crash. And I used to be a bit scared of it. So I used to hold a lot of cash thinking, hey, uh, this will protect me, you know, in a couple of different ways. Not only am I not going to lose the money, but also I can buy it at a discount, I can buy it at a value. And I love buying things on sale. I love buying things at a value. So I was holding a ton of cash, probably 30, 40% of my money was in cash for, for a while. Uh, and then I realized, but I'm losing on so many potential gains that nobody even thought about. And those, and just the time being out of the market is hurting me way more than the potential for, you know, uh, getting something on a discount. Mm 
mm-hmm. because it's it's almost kind of guaranteed. If you can, if you if you're if you're in the market, we kind of have a guarantee that we're participating at least. If you're out of the market, we're just sitting in cash. There is a big chance that you're going to spend that money <laughs> on something else. When you have money, you know, in your bank account that liquid, not only is it not making money, not only are we guaranteed to lose money on inflation, uh, but also, you know, third, there's a big chance that we'll spend that money on something that we probably shouldn't be spending that money on. So mm-hmm. for me now, I only keep kind of the minimum amount of, of cash that I need to to pay my income taxes at the end of the year, uh, which by the way, uh, these guys finally came through. So big shout out, uh, mm-hmm. to Ryan and Bright Tax for, for coming through. And actually, I think my taxes are going to be pretty low this year. Uh, I'll probably have to talk about this more after everything's paid, uh, maybe mm-hmm. in our next quarterly update. Uh, but finally, all that cash I've been sitting on is, uh, is actually being put mm-hmm. to use. Right. Um, cause if you guys listened to the last episode, I was a bit worried about that. And I would say um, I'm pretty happy with with my 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 allocation. I actually think I'm kind of the opposite of Sam, where as you had said, you know, you probably wouldn't be hit that hard if the <laughs> the uh, stock, you know, everything kind of recession hits, everything goes down. I actually think I'm the opposite, where my net worth will probably get put down in half. Mm. But I think I'm okay with that because. I'm the master at living cheaply and I have yeah. at least six months or a year where I don't have to, to work at all. Um, and I still have some passive income coming in from other sources. So I think I'll be okay. What about you? Yeah. And you, and your portfolio is, uh, has done better than mine on an aggregate level the last two years. So your, your risk factor is higher. So if we, if we do hit that recession scenario, you'll, you'll probably get hit worse than me, but you've also been outperforming me, I would say on a, on an aggregate level since we started this podcast. Yeah, I mean, because probably the easiest example is my wealth front and my betterment accounts mm-hmm. uh, is 10 out of 10 risk. While Sam, you're at what, seven or eight? Six? Uh, eight, yeah. Eight, okay. So I think that's kind of just a, like an easy thing. And I have no money in annuities or anything else that's kind of mm-hmm. protected. Everything I have is basically high risk, high reward. Yeah. And there's there's a question about non-correlated assets, and we've talked about this a lot. And the, there's there's one that we didn't mention. So we have Art of FX, which I think will do as well uh, in a down market as in an up market. And then also I talked to I had a call with PPR Note this last week. I'm probably going to invest in their new fund coming up. I really liked talking to him. I thought I mean, I, I, we had the episode with him, but actually talking about the fund specifically, you know, uh, to their investor guy, investor relations. It seemed like they were a much better fund in a down market than they are in an up market. They seem to think they have much better performance, which sounds good when you talk to them. But when that recession comes, then we'll see what really happens. But it seemed like that was a good non-correlated asset as well. So the PPR note fund that's coming out, is that based on real estate or something else? Yeah, it's um, it's similar to the one you're in. It pays, it's instead of second liens, it's first liens. And it pays a preferred of like 8% instead of 12. But it's supposed to be a little bit a uh, little bit more safe. Okay. But that, yeah, that's, that's just the one they got coming out. I think it opens up next week. So I think my, my biggest fear is if, if and when, uh, there's a big recession and, and I know there's going to be, you know, and I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not oblivious to the fact that things will happen. I'm thinking if the stock market drops, you know, or, you know, 
there's a big recession in the stock market, it's going to affect the real estate market and vice versa. You know, the, you know, the real estate market, you know, has a, a big downturn. It's going to bring down stocks. It's going to bring down kind of almost everything else. And I think what, you know, Co had mentioned in his, his question is, you know, basically a lot of us think we might be diversified, but in chances, you know, we, we're really not and everything kind of goes down. So for me, the best, kind of protection against that is just to not have to sell, not be in a position where we have to sell if there, if and when there's an, an next big downturn. So if I can, mm-hmm. if I can, you know, hold on to my thousand shares of index funds and my, you know, and just kind of everything else and not sell, even if the value temporarily drops 40% or more, as long as I don't sell it, it'll eventually come back up. You know, as long as the world doesn't end, and in that case, it doesn't matter anyways. And so to me, that's the kind of the best hedge. I guess the second question mm-hmm. is, if there is kind of this big you know, like downturn, what are you buying, Sam? I was thinking about this. If I, if I woke up tomorrow and everything was down 40% and it looked like it was going to stay down for a while, what would you buy? And we tried to answer this question after the Harry Dent episode and we're like, all right, we're going to be in a recession pretty soon. What do we buy? And I'm like, I'll buy a primary residence in Manhattan beach. Uh, and I, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> Even if I can get it 30% off, I just, I it's not appealing enough to me, but I would probably buy something. Uh, I'd probably go international and buy like a really cool property, maybe in like Barcelona or something, someplace I want to spend more time. And then I would like to buy something cool. Like, a you know, last time, there was the big recession, you could get luxury yachts for like 20 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar. So that would be a good time to do something like that. (laughs) I don't know if I would do a lot more investing uh, because I'm generally happy with where I'm at. And if I go in, if I go and say buy something for 300,000 and it doubles, uh, you know, when the market comes back, it's not going to really change my life, but it might, it might give me more headaches. And so I'm trying to trying to wind down some of the headaches right now and smooth things out. Uh, but on, but also as part of that question, Johnny, you're talking about not, not wanting to sell or not your comfort level was in that you were not going to be forced to sell. I think it's cool to underscore that. And two things that are really important for that is a having enough cash aside to weather a storm for three, four years. If that, if that's where you want to be. And then also is having uncorrelated bets as Ray Dalio calls them and making sure that you have some investments that are going to either do the opposite of the market or at least maybe go sideways in a down market and uh, and hopefully give you some yield to live off of and and kind of smooth the emotional roller coaster of that downswing. I like it. So as, as fun as it would be to have a friend with a yacht, please do not buy a yacht, even if it's 80% off. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, financial advisor, Johnny. (laughs) Oh, man. So um, I think for me, what I would probably buy, I would definitely buy more index funds as it goes down. I actually currently and pretty much always have a bunch of buy orders in place. So if you guys haven't played with that in Vanguard, um, you can set kind of buy limit orders 60 days up to 60 days in advance the only thing that sucks is they expire every 60 days and sometimes i forget to go in and put in more but basically i have it set up so if it drops you know every basically every like five percent it drops i automatically buy in and if there is a huge recession what might happen is all those buy orders might execute and then i might be out of cash to be able to buy more at a bigger dip but Mm. i think my strategy is more i would just kind of empty out my 
I don't know. It's it's kind of bad because I'm kind of emptying out my bank account as it drops. So if there is a uh, recession, then I'll I won't have that much cash to actually live on. The good news is I can live super cheaply in places like Thailand or kind of wherever I am. I'm like I think that's kind of my my biggest asset in life is you know I'm comfortable just you know living cheaply because I've done it for so many years uh, while kind of waiting for the, the recession to to finish and and go back up. As well as, you know, being able to work and do things, you know, while that happens. So I'm not too worried. And second, I have kind of just so much random other things. Um, for example, I have my Pure Street account investing in a bunch of 12 month deals. So every month mm-hmm. one of those comes due, uh, as well as, you know, things like my Yield Street account, you know, having monthly payouts or quarterly payouts for, for a lot of things where, I'll, I'll automatically kind of have money coming in anyways for the next 12 months uh, or more. So I'm, I'm not too worried about actually not having any cash. So, yeah. you know, as nice as it would be to buy everything on sale, I think, I think I would buy, you know, what, if, if the, if a property in like California or Austin or somewhere kind of that I really want to live, you know, drops 40%, I probably would buy something. Um, but I'm I'm kind of on the same point as you is I'd almost rather not have that headache or that liability and you know mm-hmm. even even if it can make me money in the future. Yeah, makes sense. I love those twelve month terms and a lot of the stuff that we're doing now with the alternative investments. I think those are really smart ways to ladder income so that hey, if we get into some really bad news tomorrow, there's a good chance that that twelve month term is going to be fine. It's like the year out or, you know, six months to a year out. But if you're if you're halfway through a 12 month term, I think it's going to be fine. And that way you always have money coming due where you don't want to be is like lending club on five year terms. And then we go into recession. I bet half of those things are going to just beep, yeah. written off. Yeah, exactly. All right. So our next question uh, is by Jake. He says, for a young non-accredited investor, what investing strategies, platforms would you suggest? We can take an allocation budget of, let's say, between 5 and 10K to start. And uh, we have a couple actually other questions uh, of people who asked something very similar. So Arthur Tam said, what's the best investment for non-accredited investors? And Nam uh, asked the same thing. How can a non-accredited investor become accredited? Like a slightly different question. Um mm-hmm. And then we have Nathan who basically asked, you know, for a non-accredited investor, uh, what is the ranking system? Let me actually play his clip for you guys right now. What's up, bosses? Sly Nate here. Uh, came across Johnny's blog and podcast from Travel Like a Boss uh, a couple months ago, and that bled over into me checking out Invest Like a Boss and it's got me hooked. Listened to a ton of episodes and reading all the books and stuff. It's been great. Uh, ready to branch out hopefully soon and to be my own digital nomad to get some things going with a little bit of money in my savings and a good runway. My question today is after listening to about half of the episodes on invest like a boss, you get, I've probably learned 30 plus different investment vehicles to pursue. I was curious if you guys could maybe make a ranking system from recommendations, basically saying we, where to start. So maybe opening a Wealthfront account may be number one or Art of FX will be a little further down the list or whatever. And everybody's situation is different and it depends on your money and your risk and your age and all that. But a general speaking as far as confidence and uh, ability to get into each one, you know, access, all of that. If you could do a simple ranking system, uh, maybe on what you would recommend to the average listener, which is hard to define. But I think that would be great. Thanks for all you guys do. Keep up the good work and we'll keep listening. All right. So – Ranking system, Sam. 
and non-accredited. Ranking system? Oh. Yeah. I want to answer the first question first, okay. which was about non-accredited, a budget of 5000 to 10000 and then build into more of the ranking system and some of the platforms. And okay. I, I'm going to answer this in a bit of a, a contrarian way, but I want to make sure that we emphasize the importance of investing in yourself first, learning new skills, traveling, going to conferences, taking courses. If you think about someone that's in the US and they're making, or anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world rather, sorry. Let's say they're making $60,000 a year, either through entrepreneurship, they have like a solopreneur type of thing, or they have a job and they're making $60,000 a year. Most of those people can go out and put in a good effort the next month and either increase their their earnings to 70,000 through the entrepreneurship, their own primary income channel, or going to their boss and saying, hey, I've, I'm really putting in an extra effort here. I have big goals within this company and I'd like to talk about a pay increase. And most people are going to be able to achieve that and that's $10,000 extra a year. Now to, to get that $10,000 through investing passively, you're going to need between a hundred and $200,000 invested, right? And that's a big chunk of change for most people. So the point is, is investing in yourself first and increasing your primary income revenue channel is the easiest way to, to make that type of money. So especially if you're starting off early, I highly, highly recommend don't invest 5,000 or 10,000 and try to make a 10 times, a 10% uh, return. Try to make a hundred times return by going out, getting nice clothes, find five smartest people that you know or have access to. You don't have to know them. You could just have access to them. Offer to, to take them out for their favorite bottle of wine, uh, intern for people, travel to conferences, do all these things, network. Uh, that stuff's going to pay off much, much more so than investing in the, the market or any type of passive investment and making 10%. Yeah, actually, you know, that, that's... That's kind of a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. I think a lot of people want to hear, mm -hmm. don't want to hear that, especially because this is an investing podcast. But mm -hmm. in reality, even if you can make 10% on a return on a $5,000 investment, that's really only 500 bucks a year, which is $41 a month. And mm -hmm. when it, when it kind of comes down to that, even though I think it's good to have investments, especially kind of while starting out, so you're building good habits, you're absolutely right. Where you know, like an extra 41 bucks a month really isn't going to change your life, you know? So it's almost not even worth spending the time and energy to try to figure out how to invest five or 10 grand, you know, mm -hmm. to try to make, you know, a couple hundred bucks extra per year from, from investments versus spending that exact same amount of time trying to figure out, okay, how can I just take this 10 grand and grow that into a hundred grand, which is a real investment, you know, where I can, you know, actually get, you know, hopefully I can get enough back per month where that'll free up my time. And I think that's mm -hmm. kind of the, kind of the ultimate goal. Uh, really the only goal of investing is to be able to make enough money from it to buy back some time so you can do other things. You can either enjoy life and retire and just chill out, or mm -hmm. you can leverage that into, you know, doing something else. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's, it's also important to note that you and I never invested any money to make passive income before we were f basically financially independent through investing our time and our knowledge, right? And we didn't have a lot of capital to start, if any, 5,000, 10,000 or something, same type of thing. Uh, and in three, four years, we were able to, to achieve financial independence. So it's a similar position for a lot of people. But if we're going to go into, okay, I have, I'm doing all those things. Now I really want to 
put some money into passive investments, same type of budgets. I think it's great to get the experience and understand, okay, A, if you've not done any investing, first just buy an index fund. Understand how that works. It's like the most basic investment that everyone has access to. And then once you've done that, I would get, uh, I would definitely fund your tax-free retirement if you have access to one. In the U.S., it's called a, a Roth IRA. That's a great thing to to go ahead and fund if you have. I think in the U.S., you can do fifty-five hundred a year. And if you have extra left over, I would I would definitely recommend one of these real estate funds that are available to non-credit investors, like Fundrise. I believe uh, Realty Mogul has one that's open. If you don't have access to that in your country, I'm sure that your country has a similar fund. But just by putting a little bit of money in that, I know in Fundrise you can do as little as $1,000, you get to understand that whole business and that whole type of investment and how it's going to act and perform and pay out compared to an index fund like Johnny owns VTI. Yeah. So actually what's what's funny is, so neither Sam or I really compared notes before answering this, but it's actually pretty similar. So uh, my order, first, second, third, fourth, the first was actually, I had to think about this for a long time, but I think one of the best things that I did and honestly kind of forgot about was maxing out my 401k matching when I had a job. I had a corporate job. So technically, I had like six or $7,000 in that account that I completely forgot about because I don't have access to it. Even today, I can't withdraw it without taking a huge penalty and I don't even know how to log into it. So that's kind of just there. And the reason why that was such a good investment is my employer matched, you know, I found the, the amount, but up to, let's say, 6% or something uh, of what I would put in, which is insane. It's basically a guarantee of doubling your investment. So if you put in mm. you know $300 a month into this employee kind of retirement plan, your boss basically takes another $300 out of their company and puts it in there. So not only do you have the potential of growth in everything that they invested in, which is you know usually some kind of mutual fund, but you're basically guaranteed to have double that amount of money. And there's no other investment out there who <laughs> that would do that. Like, you know, if I gave Vanguard a thousand dollars, they're not going to put another thousand dollars in, just be nice. And I think the reason why employee employees do this is because they know most people are stupid with their money and are never going to save anything. And when they retire, they're going to be screwed. You know, especially because our social security system is probably not going to be able to support everyone. Hmm. So right. this is kind of their way of saying, Hey, you know, we're not going to give you a pension, but by having this 401k match and in your country, it might be called something else, but you, whatever the employee match kind of contribution is, it's kind of the no brainer fallback of, Hey, when you, you know, you know, wake up one day and you're 55 or 65. And even if you didn't do anything else, at least you'll have this. I like it. A lot of benefits out there for being an employee. We, we talked about healthcare a lot on this. And again, in the U.S., if you don't have employee sponsored, uh, employer sponsored healthcare, man, it's it's nasty. It's really nasty. Uh, that four hundred one k matching is a massive benefit. Kind of miss benefits, Johnny. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I completely miss them as well. But okay, so aside from that, uh, so my second was basically start putting money into a savings account, even if it doesn't make any money. I think just forcing yourself to put money into savings account that's separate from your checkings, you know, and just having a you know, a number that you, you know, like I'm putting $300 in this account no matter what every month. And at, that's the other thing I actually like about the 401k matching is that comes out of your paycheck before you actually get it. So it's kind of the concept of pay yourself first, where instead mm-hmm. of trying to invest what you have left over, 
you know, you're putting this money in right away and then you're like, okay, what do I have left to actually spend? And it's a completely different mind, mind, uh, set shift than, you know, saying, okay, like, let me invest, you know, $300 a month after I got my paycheck and after, you know, I've bought everything and paid my bills. If I, ha- if I have money left, then I'll invest it. So if you do go that second route of putting money into a, a savings account, have that be a priority before you actually even pay your bills. And if you can't afford to put, you know, whatever that amount was into your account, then something's wrong. And, you know, you have to fix it like right away because mm-hmm. it's, you have to go, you know, really just have to make a rule. Uh, and I guess if you really wanted to be smart, you would use some kind of online bank, like Ally Bank or something. There's a lot of actual, you know, we joke that the USA uh, banks don't pay any interest, but if you do a quick search, there's a lot that actually pay like 1.75 or 1.85% interest, but they're online only banks. They're not Bank of America, Wells Fargo, or Chase. They're these small banks or online only banks that we probably never heard of. Uh, but, you know, 1.8%, you know, isn't nothing. You know, it's still like something that, that you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I actually personally don't have any. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that you don't either. <laughs> Can I ask why? Don't have any like these, um, you know these like high yield savings accounts. Like, oh, I do. Do you? Yeah. Who, who yeah, do you I do. use? I use uh, it used to be GE Money Bank. Now it's Goldman Sachs Bank. So it's actually it's called oh. like GS Bank. Marcus. So, okay. So you actually keep your your cash in an account that actually pays interest. I keep, I keep about sixty percent of my U.S. dollar savings in that, and it's yeah, it's like one point eight percent. Um. I like I love it, and it's the most simplified online banking experience you'll ever have. There's like four buttons. You can move money in. So I have that as kind of my my segue between my other accounts. So when I need to put more money in my checking account, I just boop boop ACH it. Um, if I need to make international wires, I boop boop it to the you know the other account, and then international wired it out. It's cool. I'm 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 really happy with that. I think it's it makes a lot of sense for you know for any type of just liquid savings. So, I mean, I guess the question is, why do we even have like a Chase account or a B of A account? Why not just use that? Mm, for me, it's just like the friction of changing a, a lot of things over. So my I have four accounts with Bank of America plus three credit cards and everything's just right there. Same profile, easy to do. Uh, but I don't keep a, a lot of cash in there. I actually keep just enough cash in there to get to the higher level on my credit card points. I was I haven't ran the numbers on this yet, but I'm almost thinking that's like a hack because uh, if let's say you keep 40k in there and you get to that next level, the points that you start getting on your credit card go up like 3x and that is, you know, that's the, in a form of cash or a travel credit or whatever. So it it becomes relatively meaningful actually. I think the kind of the credit card hacking could be a whole another episode, so maybe we should mm-hmm. save out on that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's something that I sh- should be doing, and actually, I should probably fi- follow my own advice, especially now that I know I know you do it. This is the first time in a hundred episodes you even mentioned that you have your money in one of these accounts. I've I've put it in the boss lounge before. It's actually gotten a lot better because it started at like point nine percent, and now it's it keeps ticking up, 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 and now it's at like one point eight. And then if you wanted to do a long-term, like 12-month CD, you can get like 2.2, which isn't great. But I, I think just keeping it liquid at 1.8 makes so much more sense. Okay. I, I like it. So that would be my second thing I would recommend people do. Mm-hmm. And then the third, so the reason why I have people do that is just to start saving up until you have you know, three to six months of of savings to, to cover yourself in case anything happens. But then the third mm-hmm. thing I would do is start investing in 
some kind of index fund like Vanguard, uh, VTI, or whatever the equivalent is. I know like Charles Schaub has one. But what I would warn people is don't invest in something that has like a, you know, 595 or 695 trading fee because if you're just putting like a thousand dollars in and you're paying a seven dollar fee, that's a huge part of that thousand dollars that you just put in. So find something, whether it's Vanguard or Shab or something that doesn't have a fee, but is equivalent to the total stock index market like VTI. And only after you do all that, then I would even look into these other like less liquid assets like fun, you know, fundrise mm-hmm. things that lock you up for five years or more. Uh, so that would be mm-hmm. my order. Yeah, the good thing with Fundrise though is you can you can sell it each quarter at the NAV, which is pretty cool. And I think a lot more of these funds will get be, start bringing some form of liquidity to them because it's really popular with at least within that fund. Uh, so to answer the, the other question about being kind of non-accredited, I think a lot of people, I would imagine, get angry when they listen to an episode and they're like. You know, gosh darn it, this is only for <laughs> non-accredited investors or accredited investors. They just get pissed off. They think that these are kind of like the holy grail end all be alls where because they're not accredited, they're getting screwed. They're missing out. They're never going to get ahead. I actually think the opposite where, yeah, it's nice. You know, some of the funds I invest in that are for accredited only, but I like looked around and I was like, you know what? There's, there are plenty of things that, you know, non-accredited investors can invest in, such as like, Wealthfront, Betterment, Vanguard, individual stocks, annuities, Fundrise, Realty Mogul, all these, you know, things, even like Republic. You can go buy a property. Yeah. And I think, honestly, a lot of these, uh, you know, these platforms for non-accredited investors are probably better for someone who doesn't have a ton of money in the bank because mm-hmm. they're less complicated. So you have like less, less of a chance of getting screwed. They are also more liquid where, you can get your money out if you need it, like if there's an emergency situation. A lot of the accredited funds are things that tie you up for five years or more, you know, and they're they're complicated. And I think that's, you know, one of the big reasons why they limit people to uh, accreditation. And even things like Lending Club or Prosper, things that I don't like investing in now, to be honest, it was probably a great first investment because it was pretty easy to understand. It didn't cost that much to get into it was, you know, and it's like, I don't know. I, I, I think the, the accreditation process is there kind of for a purpose. Uh, and if people aren't really aware of, of what that means, is that basically, accredited investor, you need to have 200000 in in, I guess, income every year, or you need to have a million dollars in net worth. And that kind of just shows that you're either... I guess it's supposed, you know, it's supposed to show that you're a little bit financially savvy, but also that if things go, you know, haywire and things go bad, that you'll probably be okay. You're not going to be completely screwed. Like, didn't what do you, you have a hack? Well, didn't yeah. you have a hack for becoming accredited? Yeah. So for those who've been, you know, who listened to my zero to one episode, it was uh, episode two of Invest Like a Boss. Basically, you know, I when I started this podcast, I did, I didn't have that much money, and a few years before that. You know, I didn't have that much either. So my accreditation hack was basically I started a dropshipping store that would do over $200,000 in net revenue per year. So it was technically income because I'm self-employed. So I would get a 1099 form from Shopify, which is the platform I build on, the payment processor that would say, you know, you know, I made $250,000 this year. But in reality, you know, most of that, like 80% or, you know, of that is expenses, you know, to buy products and things like that. So even though I was only netting, you know, let's say, 
fifty grand a year or something, it looked like on paper I was making a quarter million, which made me a tech, you know, like technically an accredited investor because they just want to see does your ten ninety nine form, you know, does your income statement say that you make over two hundred grand? And I did, so that's a great hack for everyone if they really want mm-hmm. to be accredited. Uh, is to start some kind of e-commerce store, like or dropshipping store, and probably you know I guess on the same um, same route investing in, your, in yourself. You know, if I had five thousand dollars and or th- even a thousand something dollars, and my you know I was going back to square one. The question is, do I spend my time trying to figure out how I can invest this five thousand dollars into index funds and try to make forty dollars, or do I? Take that five thousand dollars, buy a course like the one I did, went through, or figure out how to do, you know, some some kind of other business, whether it's Amazon FBA. If you don't want to do drop shipping, just whatever it is, you know, take, you know, you spend a thousand dollars on a course. Uh, the one I took was Anton Method, uh, and or there's a bunch of FBA courses out there. There's Kindle courses out there. Just there's all these different courses, and they're about thousand dollars, and. To me, that's probably the best thousand dollar investment I can make. You know, I might spend another thousand dollars building the website or buying advertising, you know, or even some product samples. Like, or for FBA, it might be a few thousand dollars uh, to start with to buy some buy some products. But I would say for that five thousand dollars, that's probably the best investment you guys can make if you're starting out. Because not only does that have the potential of becoming an income stream that's making you a few thousand dollars a month instead of forty bucks a month. But second, uh, it can give you that, you know, that big kind of, uh, chunk of change where you can hopefully have a hundred thousand dollars in the next, you know, couple of years to be able to invest and actually have a real investment. And then third, kind of as a bonus, if you start, you know, if your store starts making, you know, 15 grand a month in sales, not even in profit, even if you're only making two grand a month in profit, it will make it so you are legally accredited. There you have it. But boom, boom. So I think just like yeah. in summary, the accreditation thing is if we look at our investments, I say we have only a handful each. Less than 20% of our investments are in accredited type of funds. And I don't think you're missing a ton if you, if you really go out and, you know, look at what you can't invest in. Okay. You can't invest directly in startups in most cases. You can't invest in some of these private real, real estate funds. You can't invest in some of these alternative platforms, but that is not taking a ton off the table, right? And those things are going to become easier and easier to invest in for, you know, for anybody just like through this crowdfunding, uh, think jobs act. Now you can invest in these funds like Fundrise and a lot of other ones out there. So don't worry about it too much, but I think it is a cool limit to get to. And it's kind of to call yourself accredited when you want to but Hey, if you want to be really speculative, you can still go out and invest in cryptocurrencies. <laughs> That's true. Anybody can invest in cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter how right. broke you are. Uh, actually, and also for, for startup investing, uh, episode 40 of Invest Like a Boss, we had on the guys from Republic. And mm-hmm. that is a way that with Jobs Act now that anybody can invest in a startup. So there's ton of, tons of things. And I think the, the biggest point that Sam just made is if you look at our actual like um, total investments – there might be a couple things that we invest in or a bunch of things that we talk about and invest in that are for accredited investors only. But even when we invest in it, we're only investing a very small percentage of our, our money into it. The kind of bulk 
you know, percentage, like 80% of my, my, even in my investments are in things like index funds, uh, or, you know, other kind of things that aren't, that don't need to be, you don't need to be invested for, or you don't need to be, uh, accredited to invest in. It's just the kind of leftover, you know, money where I'm putting five or 10 grand in, you know, things that are kind of fun. Those are the, these kind of new funds that, you know, require you to be accredited. So it's fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's something to shoot for, and I think everyone should. But at the same time, never let it be a reason why you know you feel like you can't get ahead. Like it. All right. Question number five from Steve Kang. I'll read it off. What is the one strategy that you've implemented that has made the most impact on your financial or personal goals after all the expert interviews? And then we have a related question from Beck in Brisbane, Australia. Do you want to play that, Johnny? Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. Let's listen to Beck. Hi, Johnny and Sam. Congratulations on your 100th episode. My name is Beck Webster. I'm from Brisbane, Australia, and I'm one of your avid listeners. Thank you for inspiring your listeners through sharing your investment experiences. Um, they're very entertaining, and you get some great quality guests on your show, so keep up the great work. In particular, what I've learned is that the most important thing you can do is educate yourself, um, so audiobooks, and I'm hoping that your episode gets shared more and more, especially to female listeners out there, so that they too can take ownership of their, their finances and investments and, I guess, build confidence um, in, in investing and taking, um, you know, putting their financial future on track. My question to you both is related to a recent investment that we've made. Um, so we actually have a house that we live in. I'm married and I've got two children and one on the way. Um, so we're, we're purchasing our house. We've got a large chunk of equity in it. And recently we've bought in this beautiful suburb a nice block of land with the view of of building our dream home in the next couple of years. Um, it's an emotional decision. Um, it's in a beautiful location across the road, pretty much from a, a nature reserve, a lake where you can kayak, cafe, etc. So it's going to be a fantastic way of raising our young family in the city, but feeling as though that we're not um, amongst concrete all the time. My question is related to this. So this this purchase basically happened within the time frame of a week from the time that we found the block, um, gone under contract, and basically we're just doing our um, due diligence at the moment to make sure that it fits um, the purpose of what we want to do on, on this block of land and, and what we want to build. So um, what is your biggest investment decision you've made in a short time frame? And what was going through your mind at the time and how did you feel about it a year or more down the track? Um, thanks again. Keep up the great work and would love to meet you guys if you're over here in Brisbane, Australia or the, um, the Gold Coast, um, perhaps for a beer at Black Ops. Thanks, guys. All the best. All right. Three things I loved about this question. First, mm. we have an Australian listener, so we're international. Second, we have oh, yeah. female listeners. And third, she's actually, I think she's actually been to Black Ops. Oh, really? I didn't know that. But yeah, that's awesome. Shout out to Australian listeners. We got a lot of them. We recorded with some great Australian guests as well. Incle yeah, Black Ops, Dan Norris. We've got a question from him coming up in a bit. So how about we answer Steve Kang's question first, just about the one uh, the one strategy that's had the biggest impact on our financial and personal goals. Johnny, why don't you take it off first? I think mine is being in the market 
I, I think that it, it would have been so easy for me just to kind of sit out uh, or, you know, kind of wait, wait, wait. But by me actually being in the market, it's it's been the best strategy and just kind of having the mindset of saying, no matter what happens, I'm not selling. Um, you know, that's something that t- takes a long time to learn. I think it's something that someone can just tell you, but to really understand it and actually act on it when things are going down, that's going to be the big challenge. So for me, the buy and hold is my, my best strategy. What, what about you? Okay. I like that you have a specific response to that because I just want to say just the general knowledge, but I will my goal going into this was to become a knowledgeable lifetime investor out of this podcast because I had after we'd sold the business, I put money with UBS, Morgan Stanley. In one case, I lost money. And in the other case, I had a flat account. My account was flat, which meant it also lost money because I was paying tax on the fixed income component. Uh, and that and those accounts should have been up 20%. And I just didn't understand it. And it was a really helpless feeling. Uh, like I was being taken advantage of, but also that I didn't even know how to help myself to invest the money appropriately, right? So that's been my, I mean, that's where we're at now and I'm, I'm comfortable managing my money. I think I could manage maybe two times my amount of money and then I would start to need getting professional help again. But I would say if I had to pick on one strategy, I really like the strategy of understanding and finding non-correlated investments. And I've made a big stride on that the last year. And it's really fun watching, you know, we haven't had too many downturns, but we've had a few, even if they're only for like, you know, a week or so. But it's fun knowing that, okay, this chunk of money is still yielding 8%. And it's never get you know, we're never going to lose that property. And these annuities are still clicking along every month, I'm getting paid. And that's compounding each month. Uh, Watching art of FX continue to, to creep up watching some of these alternative investments pay out each month, even though my Wealthfront Vanguard accounts are all down. So I think understanding that and reinforcing that with Ray Dalio's approach to getting the whole, finding the holy grail of investing, 15 on correlated bets, and kind of looking towards the future and trying to get to that point and knowing if you get there, you should be able to weather any storm and always perform well. And that's that's cool. I'm enjoying that that quest and I'm enjoying all these these new asset classes that we have access to now. I like it. And I guess the second half of Beck's question is what are like the quick decisions that you've jumped into and how did you feel about them? I know for me, probably, you know, the, the quickest one was that ACH fund that I kind of just randomly <laughs> bought after reading some guy's uh, comment on the boss lounge, uh, which we talked about in the last episode. I think Sam, you probably are the, the quicker trigger. <laughs> what, what have you, what have you done? Almost all of my investments have been spontaneous, which is not a smart way to invest. But I like to invest a lot on gut uh, when it comes to especially startup investing. I don't look too heavily into the business model. I look at who I'm talking to, how they present themselves. Do I get a good feeling about that person? And if, in a lot of cases, if you invest in a good person, that business might go through three or four different changes in their model and structure and everything else. But if you invest in a winner, they're always going to find a way to win. So that's almost all my startup investments have been like, damn, this is a good idea. Let's do it. I would say the biggest, craziest one was uh, was the the condo in Phuket because I just was at a bar and met the developer and who was a cool guy and he started telling me about this building he's building and it hadn't broke ground yet or started selling the units. And I'm like, that sounds great, man. Like, 
maybe I'll, maybe we could buy one right now. We want to do a deal. And like over the course of five mojitos, we made a deal and I bought the first unit in this 300 unit building in Phuket. And you know, that's obviously just a, a, a stupid investing decision, but it actually worked out well. I'm really happy with it. It was kind of a gut decision and spontaneous, but all those things, you know, you go through this period of excitement and then remorse and thinking made mistakes and how's it going to pan out. And most of the times it's going to take like all those investments that condo took three years, startup investments take minimum three years usually to achieve any type of liquidity or, or, or distribution. Uh, the con, uh, the self storage units I did with Kevin, that was pretty much a snap decision that took really 12 months to start going and cash flowing. But in all cases, it's pretty much been like stimulation, excitement, big remorse. What did I do? And then over the course of time, most of those have turned out to be, you know, very good investments. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of spontaneous ones in the group. <laughs> I like it. And I think at the end of the day, if these, even if these spontaneous investments are, you know, are kind of quick to pull the trigger. I think as long as we understand kind of the, the core fundamentals, uh, which, you know, takes a lot longer to understand, but also if we're investing, you know, five or 10% or less of our total net worth into it, then it's okay. All right, Beck, thanks for the question and, and, uh, good luck with everything. And also congrats on the, the third family member coming in soon. I love it. So that was our last, uh, voice memo you guys submitted. So for this last couple questions, we're going to do kind of like a quick bossy <laughs> lightning round. I don't know how you want to call it, but let's just blast through these, uh, these last five questions. Okay. So first we have uh, from Marcel. He says, what tips and strategies do both of you recommend to increase your productivity and your total work hours in a given month? Uh, and on the same topic, Carl says, what are some specific tools that keep you organized and how do you utilize them? Go ahead. Okay. I'm pretty old school in the, in the way that I keep my to-do list. So I have a, I have my yearly goals, then I have my monthly goals, and then I have a kind of one page of to-do list in a Microsoft Word doc. Mm -hmm. And then each day I have a pen and paper and I write down up to eight things on that pen and paper. Uh, and I keep that in my wallet and my, my wallet or pocket all day with me and as I complete things I scratch it out anything that doesn't isn't completed gets moved to the paper the next day and I do that every single day I've been doing that since basically college and I think that for me is the most effective way to get things done in a day I think there's definitely something magical about writing something down with pen and paper and the psychological benefit of actually crossing that out I don't think I'll ever go fully digital into you know Evernote and other things I, I'll probably be pen and paper for the rest of my life. Um, so that's just on the daily productivity stuff. And then I've started just outsourcing a lot more things to uh, via Upwork, uh, my CPA, my attorney. I, I've had a designer and developer that I've worked with for about 10, 12 years. And whenever I need something done on the web, that's becoming a, a, a much bigger uh, need for a lot of people. So having some turnkey designers and developers that can fancy up things when you need to is a good idea. Uh, and I don't use a VA, but I also I, I often use a PA sometimes just for you know one month durations, and I think that is that frees up so much mind when you can just say I got these five errands and things around town or appointments. When you can offload all that to somebody, that frees up a lot of bandwidth for you know for for other productivity. I like it. So for for me, the kind of the best productivity tip 
or thing that I do is I develop my months into work mode, kind of what I call growth mode when I'm building something new and maintenance mode where I kind of just chill and I don't worry too much about productivity. Uh, and during kind of that growth mode, which is probably what you guys want to hear about, I use a lot of apps. I use a ton of them. One is called Timeout, which is a app that automatically locks my screen every X amount of minutes. So I set up for 30 minutes, forces me to kind of stand up, walk around and, you know, really kind of just get my, my blood flowing. Get, you know, I, I look, I try to look out in the distance and that allows me to work a lot more hours productive, productively. I also have a kind of really structured morning routine, an exercise routine, and even my diet changes when I'm in growth mode. Uh, it's a lot of stuff to go into, but I actually made a whole video about it. If you just go on YouTube and look for time hacking like a boss, uh, we'll try to put in the show notes as well. Uh, I basically talk about everything that I use, all the kind of strategies, and it, it really does work. So I think regardless of what you guys do when you guys try to increase your productivity. If you guys follow a plan, uh, do some things that Sam and I talked about, it, it really is beneficial. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, buddy. All right. So up next, uh, Ron says, paying off long-term debt versus investing money. If you have additional cash in hand, what's the best move? Uh, also, with long-term debt being student loans, mortgage, etc. Mm. Oh, you know what? We have one more listener question that we can play right now. Sorry, Leonard. Here you go. Hey, Johnny and Sam, this is Leonard McGill from Charleston, South Carolina, and I love the podcast. I recommend it to everybody I know. Um, My question is, I own my own condo. Uh, It's worth a little over $200,000. Don't have a mortgage on it. I'm wondering if I did want to get creative and use the equity in the house to invest, how would I go about doing that? Thanks a lot. All right. So, Sam, what do you you think about additional cash? Should Should you be paying off debt? Should you be leveraging your equity? Go. There was a note in Boss Lounge when this question came in from Johannes, and I actually agree totally. It depends on the interest rate of that debt, of course. Uh, what else you got going on in life, your other income streams. I would say that if, if it's anything like consumer or student debt, which is usually higher interest rates, you got to get rid of that. It's a psychological headwind. It's 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 just – I think it's too limiting. If it's more like investment debt, like a mortgage on a house – in a lot of cases, I think it makes sense to keep it if you have extra cash to invest it. But again, you got to have a you have to have a, a a strategy. So if you put it in the market, you better put that money in the market for you know fifteen twenty years because if you want to if you want to grow it over your four percent interest rate, you, you know you could have a, a four or five year downturn, right? So you're going to have to give it money to outperform or give it time to outperform. My sister, her her. Uh, husband are in a very similar situation. They have a mortgage on their house in California. It's you know probably six or seven hundred thousand dollars. They just came into close to that amount of money, and it's the same decision. You know their their interest rates like three point eight percent. Is it worth putting the money they came into to pay off that house? Probably not, right? If if you're smart people and you have good strategy or you can reinvest that into your own business or you know. There's a lot of ways that you can outperform, and a lot of people get wealthy doing exactly this, which is refinancing a place, putting that money to use. Kevin Shea is a perfect example of it in Hong Kong. So I think logically or even just mathematically, it's pretty simple. If you your investments make higher interest than you know the kind of the, the debt interest, then it makes sense. However, I think people kind of underestimate what actually happens in reality in the future and things that kind of go up and down and things that happen in your personal life. One of the best things I ever did was I paid off my student loan debt 
as soon as I could. Like I was still broke. I was living in Thailand and I was collecting unemployment <laughs> technically while I was traveling. <laughs> and I could have used that money to, you know, to, I guess to, to have a better life, to travel more or use that money for something else. But I was like, you know what? Let me just use that towards my student loan debt, stay broke and pay it off as, as quick as I can. So that, you know, going to, you know, basically it didn't change my life because instead of being in student loan debt, which isn't seen as a bad thing and it's a really low interest rate, I basically just went to having no money uh, and being debt free and it didn't feel any, any difference. I was still broke. But I think what happened was that gave me kind of the peace of mind to be able to take bigger risks and do other things versus mm-hmm. having that kind of over my head or just in case. So I, it, it's, it's a hard one. I think it's difficult. Um, but personally, I like being debt free, even though it doesn't make logical sense. Yeah. And I know that I'm missing out by not leveraging, you know, myself and, uh, and things. I could probably make a lot more money. So I would say that is kind of the big question that you want to ask yourself is, does the peace of mind and kind of that guarantee of even if worse comes to worse, you're kind of just back to square one, you're fine. Uh, you know, you still, you know, you'll still be broke, but at least you won't be in debt. Is that mm-hmm. a better feeling or are you trying to like kind of do a moonshot and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to leverage all this. Either I'm going to be super rich. Uh, this is going to pay off or I'm going to be in debt and I'm going to be really screwed. For me, I'd rather kind of be comfortable than have that moonshot. And that's why I tend not to leverage anything. I agree. I'm with you, buddy. I took out a hundred thousand dollar loan against my securities at UBS. And I, and I'm like, what do I even, I, I'm not even, what am I doing with this? I, I invested in a market. And I'm like, and then I have to worry about paying interest on it each month and the paperwork and end of the year accounting. I just like, ah, paid it off, be done with it. So what's funny is, uh, my accountant, uh, Ryan from bright tax, he basically mm-hmm. gave me the option of paying my, my, uh, my income tax due this year over, I think something like eight payments or like eight yearly payments. But, um, or so actually, maybe it was even longer. It's like 15 year, you know, like payments or something. So it can be super low. It can be like, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year versus, or I can pay like, you know, the five grand up front or however, however much it was. And at first I was like, ah, oh, man, it's, it's interest free. I can, you know, like I can have this kind of make me money over the next eight years or 10 years. And at first I said, okay, let's, let's, I guess let's do that. And then he replies back saying, okay, like this is how you, how you do it. You know, you have to, you know, remind your accountant every year to, to pay this. You have to do it through a, you know, wire transfer. You have to do this. You have to do that. And I finally replied to him saying like, you know what? Let me just pay it off. It's not worth my headache. It's not worth me <laughs> yeah. thinking about, and especially when you have fees like wire transfer fees coming in, payment fees coming in, even if it's interest free, it ends up not, it's not being worth it. And, and that was probably one of the best decisions I've made is not having a headache. There's a productivity tip. Pay off the debt. Yeah. F- f- get that, that free space in your head. I really yeah. believe that's it's invaluable. Yeah. couple more questions. So we got Jocko. I thought this was a great question because we've gotten this question a lot individually, not necessarily addressed it on the show yet, but we'll go ahead and address it. Have you guys ever thought of a number that would be enough number for the rest of your lives so when you hit it, you would never need to make any more? And I'll caveat this by saying they did a study that I was – just recently introduced to that basically said that no matter what you're earning, they asked this question to like 200 people and everyone pretty much picked a number of income that's like 50% higher. 
oh, if I just if I'm making a million, oh, if I could just make a million five, I'd be so happy. If I'm making fifty thousand, oh, if I could just make seventy five thousand, I'd be the happiest person in the world. I never need more. But what they found is, no matter what income level they asked, everybody said more. And I think that is the truth to to finance in this world is no matter where you get, you're going to want to level up. I, it's sad, but it's true. I, I honestly don't want to admit to that, but there's kind of no level. I've, I've, this is what I've learned kind of the hard way is whatever your net worth is, if it goes down <laughs> even by <laughs> a couple, you know, a little bit, like by 1% <laughs> a year, which means you can live a hundred years without it, without running out. Mm-hmm. you'll still panic and freak out and you hate your life. So yeah. it, it just can never go down, which sucks. So I think that's yeah. kind of a huge mindset shift. It's almost easier if you don't have a big number because then you kind of just, you know, you're okay with, I think, you know, if someone had like a couple thousand dollars in the bank, and then they went to zero. It's not a big deal. But if you mm-hmm. had, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank and went to zero, you freak out. Yeah. Or if you had 30 million and you were used to living that lifestyle, and you went broke, and then and, you have to slum even it. Even if you like get that, down to one million, really I think if you went yeah. from thirty million to one million, you'd freak out. Yeah, that's why it's important to always live well under your means because you don't know what times are ahead. But Johnny, have you given this thought? Like, what's what would be your number that right now you think if I got there, pure vita, three million. And the reason why I say that is if I can make five percent a year on it, you know, which is pretty easy. That's one hundred fifty grand. And to, to me, that's kind of living pretty good life for me. I'm happy with that. Um, and I think the problem is if I'm worth $3 million and I become a millionaire and I start hanging out with more millionaires and you know having that lifestyle, it probably wouldn't be enough and I'll probably freak out and stress out. But right now, my number is just $3 million net worth, You know, mostly in 90% invested. So I can, if I can have 10 grand a month in passive investment income, I'd be happy. Ah, oh, man. I'm going to sound like a greedy hog, but so my number was kind of originally 20 million. And now I think it's probably closer to 25. And I think at that level, you can start running your, your life like a business. So you have, of course, CPA, attorney, uh, those would be on, you know, retainer. Then you'd have a full time PA, full time estate manager to kind of look after your assets, manage your properties. And then you probably have a driver and a cook, so you just you're you're living the entourage lifestyle, right? Then you this would also allow you to have three baller properties around the world, pick them, you know, Miami, Barcelona, Bangkok, something like that. And you should still at that level with that lifestyle still be able to grow your wealth. I think at at anything less, like let's say ten million, it's hard to to grow your wealth because. If you're living just passively off your investments, let's not say you're you're making you know three hundred thousand as a an executive somewhere. You're just living off your investment income. Let's say you you, you make six percent on it a year because you're not investing a hundred percent and you're a little bit more conservative. That's six hundred thousand. Let's use thirty percent tax rate. That is what uh, twenty. Uh, that's two hundred thousand. You pay off the top, so you have four hundred left. You spend two hundred. That means you have two hundred left. And inflation eats away the rest, right? And that's if nothing bad happens. So that's why it, you know, it can be hard to grow. And then you, and you're not having full time people like a PA and a cook and a driver and all this other cool stuff. So that I think is a cool moonshot number to get to. That said, Johnny and I had a lot of discussions about this in Spain about you know all, all these things that we're talking about with happiness and wealth. And 
right now I'm just focused. I'm not as focused on trying to get to a, a new number. I'm focused on just trying to enjoy what I have, be proud of what I've done in the past, not put too many, you know, new financial goals ahead of me and just try to live each day and enjoy. Well, I think you should be happy, Sam. And I think you should pat yourself on the back for all the hard work you put in. And even if you never make another dollar, I, I think, you know, you've done well. You, you deserve, you know, to be happy today and be able to enjoy the crap out of life today. So I'm glad that, you know, even I think it's good to have bigger goals because they're always kind of moving forward. Um, but I also think it's just as important to, to kind of just recognize where we've come, you know, like how far we've come and just be able to enjoy it now as well. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. You yeah. too. I appreciate you, buddy. And and honestly, I think I would benefit from having bigger goals because I've been a little bit content uh, lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think things will change, you know. So if I you know, have a family and it costs a lot to you know four feet, you know, feed four mouths. Uh, yeah, sure does. You know, and I don't want to you know live in you know stay in cheap apartments anymore. Like for example, that 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 place I booked for us in Bar- in uh, Valencia sucked. Right? <laughs> no and, air conditioning. Yeah, and it was still eighty euros a night. So I was like, oh, like I'm not paying. You know, it's like I'm not paying more than eighty euros a night for a hotel for one night. We're just sleeping. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, crap, man. I I wish you know 150 euros a night want to be and you know a big deal to me because we would have been so much more comfortable. Uh, but at the yeah. same time, you know, I'm happy that we did it now because it makes us appreciate kind of better things. But Honestly, yeah. like, especially when I have like a family, if I'm, you know, get a little bit older, like I never want to go through that again. I want to have the option to, to ball out and, and, you know, stay at the, at the Fairmont like you do once in a while. Well, you can just find a lot of rich friends. That's a better way to do it. Then you don't have the taxes and stuff. You just get access to everything they have. Yeah. Maybe you should buy that yacht. <laughs> <laughs> On second thought, maybe you should buy the yacht. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. Next question. So we have Rick. Yep. Go he ahead. says, with an investment of five hundred, what investment of five hundred dollars or less has been the biggest impact on your life? Go uh, this year. So mine is super easy. Boys, Bose headphones. I'm wearing them right now, Johnny. I never thought I'd buy big headphones like this. I thought they're stupid looking and clunky. But I'm traveling so much now and in co-working spaces so much now. It just it takes away all the outside sound and it puts me into a focus and also puts me into a much more chilled mindset so these were like 340 dollars. i thought it was crazy but man i've i've gotten a tremendous amount of use and value out of them so far i have the exact same pairs qc35s i wrote a review on them and i felt the exact same way i thought this is a waste of money i can't believe i'm spending 350 dollars. Mm-hmm. i actually spent 350 euros on it because i was in europe at the time mm-hmm. but man i've gotten so much use from them i, I wear them basically daily i wear them on the plane it's like it really is that a great investment for digital nomads and people who travel, work in cafes and co-working spaces. Mm-hmm. That peace of mind is you just can't you can't beat it. But you know, I would say those are things we bought. You know, and if if I went for kind of the biggest best investments I've I've done in my life, it would be on books that I bought or on courses I yeah. bought. You know, it's because those actually deliver ROI. Yeah, agree with all that. All right, so super super quick. Last three questions. David Steiner says, what are your views on the cost benefit of traditional college education? Good question. What do you think, Sam? Go for it. Oh, Uh, okay. So I I would say that the typical college education is getting you one job out of college. Once you're 30 years old, 
no one's really looking at your college experience. They're looking at your, your work experience. But for me, college was, was not education. It was the, it was getting out on my own and learning how to live and stand on my own two feet and be responsible. Whereas in high school, I didn't really have that many responsibilities. I think as everyone knows, college education, the values being debated highly right now. And also the format of education is, is probably going to be disrupted significantly by technology. But I still think if I had a kid today that was, say, 16, 17, 18, I would be pushing them to get an education, but I would also make it slightly different. I would either force them to, t- to take part of their college uh, fund and start a business or learn skills, um, you know, do internships, something to complement or supplement that college education, because I don't think college education on its own is going to be as valuable in the future as it has been in the past. I would say if my my children wanted to have a degree in some kind of STEM uh, degree, science, technology, engineering, or math, yes, go for it. Great investment. I think, you know, that's amazing. If they wanted to do anything else, you know, really any kind of BA degree or social science like I did or liberal arts or, you know, something that doesn't have a very clear ROI for it, they're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Uh, I would say it's a complete waste of money for the degree, but the experience, like you mentioned, is invaluable. You know, moving out, being an adult. So I would almost tell them, I mean, I think the ultimate hack would be to find some kind of really good college or university where you can just sit in on lectures and not be a student. (laughs) I think even Mm -hmm. at like Stanford, you're allowed to do that. I would just have somebody move to, you you know, like near student housing, get, you know, maybe college roommates, go to these lectures, study on their own, and kind of just do their own thing and just not take the piece of paper because I think the piece of paper is useless, but I think the experience itself is invaluable. I like it. Next question, we have two left. David Ray, any further look at Airbnb pursuits? I'm interested myself in the Denver area and curious if you're going down that route and have done much research yet. So personally, Johnny, I have dropped this pursuit for now, although I was super intrigued and looking hard at it for about six months, actually the last six months. So I looked at Savannah, Tampa, Denver, a few more places, and I think it's an awesome opportunity. But for me, the the value proposition just isn't there. The headaches, the potential liability, the bandwidth, it's it doesn't make that much sense. I'm not as bullish on staying full-time in the U.S. anymore, uh, but I still think it's a great opportunity for a lot of people. So I actually was just looking at condos online for Chiang Mai, <laughs> thinking about what I can buy. Mm-hmm. And doing the math, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's especially in a place where you can rent something that's relatively affordable. If it takes me nine years to get that money back, it's just not worth it. So I'm not going to be doing it. I'm just going to live in places where I can rent monthly units for something, you know, reasonable. As long mm-hmm. as I can get an Airbnb for $1,000 or less somewhere in the world, whether it's Chiang Mai or, you know, Ukraine or Poland, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I'm ever going to buy something. All right. Last question. Dan Norris, how much does your own personal enjoyment of the work associated with your investment factor into your decision making? All of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> right? I enjoy, I enjoy the crap out of investing. I enjoy this podcast. I'm, uh, I don't know if I'm happy to announce, but 100 episodes in, we are still not making money from this podcast. Sam, <laughs> Sam's invested a ton of his time. <laughs> I've invested, you know, some money for editing. You know, uh, mm. Sam just remade the website for us. Like, it's costing us a lot of money, and but we love it. I think personally, we've gotten so much joy from it. It's given us 
a passion. It's helped our own investing, you know. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, this really is a passion project. I, you know, I hope one day that, you know, we get enough consistent ads to be able to, to, to offset it. So go to investlikeaboss.com slash personal. <laughs> but yeah. even if it never happens, it's been, it's been such a pleasure and I really enjoy the investments I'm in. What about you, Sam? I completely agree with that hundred percent. I would just say that that goes into other forms of work as well. I haven't found anything that I really enjoy as much as just being around smart people that have their head on their shoulders and supporting entrepreneurs and supporting friends in a lot of cases. So for me, work is, it's the ultimate hobby. I hope one day I'm able to replace it. I think like Dan Norris, you know, he basically went from digital entrepreneur to, uh, to, you know, beer brewer. And I just look at the photos of what they're doing over there and I can't imagine anything better than, than that type of business. So hopefully one day start something really cool like that. But in the meantime, it's cool to be part of Dan's as an investor. And I would say, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's a blast doing all this stuff. It's been a blast doing this podcast and I'm looking forward to doing many, many more episodes with you, Johnny. You as well, Sam. It was awesome hanging out with you throughout, you know, Western Europe, Spain, Portugal, meeting up. So kind of this is the, the wrap up to, to our summer trip. Uh, mm-hmm. big thank you to all of you guys who've been listening for a hundred episodes. If you want to really celebrate with us and really kind of help, you know, us to get to episode 200, hopefully someday, share, share this, you know, episode with your friends or share your favorite episode. You know, maybe not necessarily mm-hmm. this one, but share it with a friend, share it with your relatives, your coworkers, you know, your friends, your family on social media, wherever you can go to iTunes, leave us a review. You know, use our links on investlikeaboss.com if you, if you buy any books or anything from Amazon, especially things that we talked about recommended, you know, mm-hmm. make that free account at personal capital and just, just do, do whatever you guys can to kind of help out. Uh, we appreciate it. But even if you don't, <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. You know, I've enjoyed mm-hmm. this. Sam has enjoyed this and congrats, buddy. Yeah. Yep. Here's to, here's to episode 200. All right. I wish we had something to click, but neither of us have a drink. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks to you, Johnny. And we'll catch you all next week. Stay bossy. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.